You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lifted Esther could have sung Rescue Me. She had someone she needed to be rescued from. And she could have sung it literally. I, Rescue Me, that song comes from Psalm 17. The lines in the song are drawn directly out of Psalm 17. Psalm 17 was written by David, great king and hero of Israel. He lived 500 years before Esther. And if she knew her scriptures at all, she certainly could have known lines out of Psalm 17. She could have sung it, probably to a different tune, but she could have sung Rescue Me. The wicked person that she and her people needed to be rescued from was... Haman, he had convinced the king, the king of Persia, to decree the extermination of all the Jews in the empire on a certain day. We have been reading through the book of Esther and studying it these last couple of weeks, and today uh, we'll be in our third of four lessons from Esther, and so we'll finish up Esther's story next week. Let's review the story as we've studied it up to this point through the first four chapters. Queen Vashti, queen of Persia, had disobeyed King Xerxes, and he fired her as queen. That was in chapter 1. He sent her away, said, you can never come back into my presence again. The king chose a new queen in chapter 2. That was Esther. She was a Jew, but secretly the Persian Empire controlled the homeland of the Jews and Jews throughout the empire at that time. She was a Jew, but secretly she hadn't told him. A little later, Mordecai, who had raised Esther after her parents died, he was Esther's cousin, he finds out about a plot to assassinate the king. He tells Esther, she tells King Xerxes, and he has it investigated, finds out it's true, and he has the two men who conspired against him executed. And Mordecai gets credit because he was the first to report the plot. The king is saved. And then in chapter 3, Haman becomes the king's highest official. We don't know how or why, just know the king liked him for some reason. But because he's an Agagite, an ancient enemy of the Jews, he has this problem with Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, and that infuriates Haman. So Haman arranges by the king's authority to have not just Mordecai, but all the Jews killed on a certain day, 11 months down the road. Mordecai hears about that decree in chapter 4, and he instructs Esther to go to the king for help. Otherwise, all the Jews will be wiped out. She hesitates at first because it's illegal to go before the king unsummoned. She could be killed just for appearing before him without an invitation unless he holds out the gold scepter to pardon her. That's the only way she can be saved. But Mordecai tells her that she has to go. And he says, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther, I think, agrees to go before the king, even at risk of her life, because she recognizes God at work in her becoming queen, preparing her for this moment. She has a sense that God did this. So she asks Mordecai 
and all the Jews in Susa, the city where they live and where the king's palace is, to fast for her. And she will fast too for three days. And then she will risk going before the king. And that's where we stopped last week. Remember our memory verse for this series? We'll put it up here on the screen. Read it with me if you would. We'll read it together twice through. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Once more. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That was written by the Apostle Paul about 500 years after Esther. So she never read that in Scripture, but she understood that principle because she was living it. She believed God was working in her life, and so she was willing to put her life on the line to work with him to save her people. And even though God is never directly mentioned in the whole book of Esther, not once, we look back on her story and we think she was right. God did this. And the biggest clue that God did this is that night when the king could not sleep. At the beginning of chapter 6. We'll get there in just a minute. It could have been coincidence. I mean, it could have been. But what are the odds? Let's pick up the story right where we left off last week at the start of chapter 5. Risking her life, Esther goes to the king uninvited to plead with him to spare her people. Esther 5 verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom... It will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Esther is a courageous woman. The king could have had her executed for coming before him uninvited, even though she's the queen. And yet she goes. Because many thousands of lives are depending on her. And because she believes God is at work here. She's also a person of wisdom. 
She understands how to work with this king. He's rather impulsive. The last time he was challenged by a queen, he did not react well. So Esther doesn't start throwing accusations around right there in the court. That's not going to go over well. Instead, she gives him time to wonder what's so important to her that she would risk her life just to invite him to a banquet. She gets him thinking. Then they drink wine together. In their culture, that was typically at the end of the banquet. So they've enjoyed a good meal. They're drinking wine together. And the king asks again what her request is. And she asks him to come to another banquet tomorrow. And then she will tell him. And some people think that Esther at this point kind of chickened out. That she was too afraid to say what was on her mind, on her heart. But I think she did this entirely on purpose. And she wants to really get the king thinking. What could Esther's request be that's so important? Now, while Esther is having to show great courage and wisdom, Haman is having the time of his life. He is having a great day, except for one little thing. Chapter 5, verse 9. Haman went out that day happy, And in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, that's 75 feet, about seven stories tall, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Haman, coming off of a great day, is filled with rage against Mordecai, who previously refused to kneel before him, and now refuses to rise or even show fear in his presence. But Haman restrains himself for the moment. He goes home, and he boasts. He has everything. He has vast wealth. He's honored by the king in so many ways. He's elevated above the other nobles and officials. And Haman has many sons. The Greek historian Herodotus, who is one of our best sources of information about the Persian Empire at this time, tells us that having many sons was highly esteemed in Persia. 
second only to valor in battle. And so much so that the king would give a gift to the citizen who had the most sons. This was a big deal in Persia. Haman has a lot of sons. He boasts. Psalm 17, that our song, Rescue Me, comes from, says about the wicked, their mouths speak with arrogance. And that's Haman for sure. Haman has everything. But he says, all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Literally, in Hebrew, he says, all this is not enough for me. His wealth, his prestige, his many sons. Before he can truly be happy, he needs one more thing. There's a lesson there for us, I think. The danger of always needing one more thing before we can be happy. Can we find contentment in what God has already graciously given us? Haman had ten sons, chapter 9 says. Ten sons. I wonder what it might have been like to have been one of his sons standing there hearing him say how proud he is to have all these sons, but they're not enough for me. They're not enough. Haman's wife, Zeresh, hears her husband's frustration and has a suggestion. Take this problem that is Mordecai and kill it. Get rid of it. Set up a pole so high that the whole city can see it and have Mordecai killed and his body impaled on it. That'll teach everyone who sees it not to mess with you. Chapter 5, verse 14 says, This suggestion delighted Haman. And so he made preparations to do it. He's already made arrangements to slaughter all the Jews. Now he makes preparations to kill Mordecai early. He has that, that pole set up. Psalm 17 says the wicked person is like a lion hungry for prey. Haman is that lion ready to pounce on Mordecai. And like a great lion, Haman appears so powerful that nothing can stop him. But then, the strangest thing happens that night and the next morning back in the royal court. Esther chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. 
Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. It's the strangest thing. Haman was all set up to have that great, obstinate irritation, Mordecai the Jew, executed. All he needed was permission from the king, and he was sure to get that. The king kind of gave him permission for everything he wanted to do, it sounds like. But that night, the king could not sleep. Why that night? Did Xerxes often have trouble sleeping? And when the king had the book of the Chronicles of his reign read to him, how does it just happen that the reading comes from that time when Mordecai saved the king's life? Why that reading? Now, Mordecai had saved the king's life roughly five years earlier. How does it happen that the king, remembering this story, is suddenly moved to honor Mordecai? You know, when coincidences like these start stacking up in a way that brings about a very good result in the end, it actually becomes difficult to not sense a pattern of events that make you say, I think God did this. When I was looking for a preaching job 20 years ago, Janie and I were living in Memphis. We got to know um, the guest speaker that our, our church brought in for a college student retreat. We picked him up from the airport, took him to the, the, the retreat and got to chat with him. He was from Seattle. I was looking to work with a church in the Northwest, which is where I'm from, born and, born and raised partly. I was always hoping to come back. A few weeks after meeting this preacher, after he'd gone back home, I got a call from a man I'd never heard of, a man named Roy Knott, lived in Yakima, Washington, on the east side of the mountains, interim preacher here who was a friend of that other preacher, He invited me to apply for the preaching position here, and I did, even though I thought, well, I'm probably more of a west of the mountains kind of guy. That's where I expected to be, but I'd been looking for work there, just couldn't find anything, and all of a sudden, this falls into my lap. I thought, well, you know, maybe this is from God. Let's look into it. It was a great fit. I came out and, and preached once for the church, and they still liked me. Came out and they, they, they offered to, to uh, move us here and get us started in our work here. And seven months after meeting that preacher from Seattle, I, I preached my first sermon on the job here. Coincidence? All these things that kind of fell into line? Maybe. 
But it worked out so smoothly, and it's continued to be such a blessing, that it sure seemed like God did this. The reversal in Haman's fortunes here is so sudden that it's, it's funny. One moment he's so arrogant, he's saying to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? As if he's the only person in the kingdom he can think of who the king might want to honor that day. And then the next moment, when he has suggested what the king should do, the king says, yeah, go do that for Mordecai the Jew. And then in Zeresh, Haman's wife, who appears to be a very astute woman, is right. From that moment, Haman's life begins to fall apart. And look at the timing. I said in the lesson last week that timing is important in the book of Esther. That very morning that Haman has set up this pole to have Mordecai's body displayed to the city, the king hasn't been able to sleep, is reminded of how that same Mordecai had saved his life and decides to repay his debt to Mordecai that day, if possible, by honoring him. And at just that moment when Haman comes to the king to request permission to execute Mordecai, the king, who is completely clueless about Mordecai's intentions here, turns the table on Haman about Haman's intentions here, I mean, turns the tables on Haman and sends him out to give Mordecai one of the greatest honors the king could give, wearing the king's own robe, riding the king's own horse, as if for a moment Mordecai were almost king himself. Which, since Haman's the one who suggested that this be done, gives us a sense for what Haman had perhaps hoped to get for himself. Afterward, Mordecai goes back to the king's gate, goes back to work. He's a, some kind of official at the king's gate. But Haman rushes home with his head covered in grief. And the timing is so perfect. And the rise of Mordecai and the fall of Haman are so sudden that the person who believes that in all things God works for the good of those who love him really has no hesitation at all about saying, look, God did this. And if there were still any question about whether God really is involved here, that doubt evaporates in chapter 7 as Haman is brought by the eunuchs to the second banquet with the king and the queen. Chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up, up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. 
King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Haman was a very proud man, and he fell hard. Psalm 73, verse 19 says of the wicked, How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Which is to say the wicked do terrible things, and God lets them get away with it for a while, maybe to give them a chance to repent, because God is often more gracious and merciful than we would want him to be. But when he stretches out his hand to deal with the wicked, they fall suddenly. And that's what happens with Haman. One night, gloating about how great he is, the next evening, gone. Put to an end in the same way he had plotted to end innocent Mordecai. Psalm 17 says about the wicked, Rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down with your sword, rescue me from the wicked. And it's clear that in the case of Esther, Mordecai, and Haman, God did. God did this. There at the second banquet, at the end of the meal, as they're drinking wine together, King Xerxes asks Queen Esther what it is that she wants so much. And again, Esther is so wise in her approach. See, she has to be extremely careful here because the king gave Haman the authority back in chapter 3 to order the the destruction of all the Jews. Now, the king didn't know who it was that Haman intended to get rid of. He probably should have asked. But he's the one who gave Haman that authority to make that decree. And so the king is guilty too. But this king has a quick temper, as we saw with Queen Vashti in chapter 1. And so if Esther wants his help, she has to be careful not to say or even imply, you did this. She has to point to Haman without pointing to the king. And she succeeds. She presents her case as if Haman has betrayed the king by plotting to destroy the king's queen and her people, which he has, though he didn't know she was a Jew. The king is furious. 
He apparently connects the dots. He understands what Haman has done. He storms out of the room and into the palace garden. And at that moment, Persian law requires that Haman leave the room. No man who is not a eunuch is allowed to stay in the same room with the queen when the king is not present. In fact, when the king was present, uh, they had to stay seven paces away from the queen. But he can't go out with the king. The king is furious with him. He knows that. He can't go with the king. If he just leaves the room, goes somewhere else, it'll look like he's running. So he's, he's stuck. So he, he stays to beg Esther for his life. And he falls before her on the couch where she's reclining just as the king returns. And that does not look good to the king. He explodes in rage. And Harbana, one of the eunuchs there serving the king and queen, mentions to the king that Haman had that pole set up, that huge pole, to do away with Mordecai, who, he adds, spoke up to help the king. I get the impression that Harbana had no love for Haman. And suddenly, Haman is no more. There's irony everywhere in this story. I'll give you just a couple bits of it. Haman, who decided to kill all the Jews because one of them refused to bow down to him, now falls down himself before another Jew, Esther, and then is killed because of it. Earlier, Haman couldn't drive Mordecai to his knees, but Mordecai willingly humbled himself before God through fasting and petition. And God, in response, brought wicked, arrogant Haman down. After one banquet, Queen Vashti lost her position. The next banquet celebrates the exaltation of Esther to be queen. Now, one banquet hosted by Queen Esther puffs Haman up, but the next brings his destruction. Irony. Coincidence? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God did this. So when the wicked rise up and do their worst, my friends, don't panic, but pray. There are wicked people all over this world, some in very high positions, some doing very terrible things today, some in low positions but causing trouble in their families or in their communities or wherever they have authority. God can bring evil people to their end very suddenly in a way no one could, could have predicted and in a way that only God himself could arrange. And if we believe that's true, then we don't need to attack our enemies ourselves. Let God take care of them in his time if he needs to. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. And that's what we'll do until God chooses to act in the way that is best in his eyes. We don't need to panic and despair because we can't stop those who do evil. We do need to pray. Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jews in their city fasted, calling on God for help, and he helped them. The person we need God to stop could be a violent and powerful man like Haman, 
And we may pray against that person for the sake of the innocent who are being destroyed or harmed by that person. It may be a corrupt person in a position of authority who gathers wealth or pumps up his ego by abusing others. Whoever it is, we don't hate them, but we do pray that God would rise up and bring them down if that's what it takes because that's what we need God to do, to protect the innocent who cannot protect themselves. And God will do it. Either now or soon or in a while or ultimately when Jesus comes again. No one who does evil will escape the judgment on that day. And in the meantime, as we pray, we have a part to play as well. There's no way Esther could have prepared the king like God did with that sleepless night, with the reading of just the right chronicles from his reign, with Haman's perfect timing as he came arrogantly before the king and then was sent out to honor Mordecai of all people. God did this, but Esther still had to do her part. She still had to act with great courage, address the king with as much wisdom as God had given her. And we still have to do our part because God is working to save the world and he calls his people to be part of that great effort. And that kind of work is much too big for us. Just like saving her people was much too big for Esther. But God is gracious and he doesn't call us to do his work alone. In fact, he's already done so much of it. He gave Jesus who died for us. And God raised him from the dead. And we look at the cross and then we look at Jesus' empty tomb. We see where wicked people put him to death. And then we see where God raised him from the dead. And we declare that God did this. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, and if he works in our lives today to bring good out of every situation, and if he's working to one day judge the wicked and vindicate his people, then we can join him in that good work with all the courage and wisdom he gives us through his Holy Spirit. And we can do our part. And one day, when all is finished, we will look back on our lives, see the big picture of how God worked in all of our troubles to bring about eternal good, and we will praise him and say, our God did this. May God bless you. Let's pray. Our dear Father, our Creator, be the God who does great things in our lives and in the life of your church. Lord, let us see your power against the wicked when they will not repent, when they will not change their ways. Lord, we love our enemies as Jesus taught us to and we pray for them and we call on you to change their hearts and help them turn back to you. But if they refuse, Lord, rise up and bring them down for the sake of the innocent that lives might be saved, that, that those who have done nothing wrong might be protected, that the weak might be strengthened and lifted up. Lord, we thank you so much for the great things you did uh, for Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people in their time. We thank you, dear God, for how you showed your mighty power. We thank you what you did through Jesus, that though he was killed by wicked men, 
You raised him from the dead and conquered death itself and gave us hope of eternal life. Lord, help us to walk with you and do our part, whatever you call us to do, as we serve you and join you in your great work of saving the world. Give us wisdom and courage this week and eyes to see where you're leading us. Let us go where you send and do what you call us to do. Guide us and help us, dear God. Bless your church this week that we might be a light to our community, a light of hope and goodness, giving glory to God. In Jesus' name.